Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians 15, we'll be looking this morning at verses 20 through 34. First Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 34. Please give your attention to God's word. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. When we're making small talk with children, one of the most common questions that we ask them is, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the fact that we say that so readily and so often to children, realize we're teaching them something. We're making an important statement to them. We're saying to them that their vision of the future is very, very important. That their vision of the future has power. I think that having that necessity in our heart and our minds to look into the future, to project into the future, to have a vision for the future is something that reflects the fact that we are made in the image of God. That's something that's unique to human beings. My dog, Dash, doesn't lie on the couch in my living room thinking about what kind of a dog he's going to be in five years from now. <laughs> Probably explains a lack of drive and ambition in his life, but... <laughs> but we do, as human beings. We think about it a lot. Where will we, I, I be next year, five years, ten years from now, twenty years, a hundred years, a thousand years, a million years? Where will I be? 
Your vision of the future has a powerful impact on your thinking, your choices, and your behavior today. That's undeniable. When I think back to when I was a child, my family and the culture beyond my family impressed certain expectations upon me. There was no doubt in my mind when I was growing up that I was going to go to college, that I was going to graduate college, that I was going to find a nice girl and marry her, that I was going to find a respectable job, I was going to buy a house, raise a family, the American dream. Those were strong expectations. I, I fully expected all that to happen, and lo and behold, by God's grace, it did. But it doesn't for everybody. And honestly, I think that a lot of the anxieties that we experience in life are anxieties about, well, what if I don't accomplish my dream, my vision for the future? Or what, having accomplished it, what if I lose it? Or I think a lot of the griefs, a lot of the heartaches that we feel in life are due to the fact that maybe we've accomplished our dream or most of it and we haven't found it to be as satisfying and joyful as we thought it would be. In light of all this, and this is just observation of what's real and true in the world, in light of all this, it's fascinating to me that scripture again and again and again calls upon us to focus upon the future. We are to be a people who are driven by a vision of the future. But that future that we are to think about, dream about, strive for, is not something that we've dreamed up for ourselves. It's not something that our family or our culture has imposed upon us. It is a future that he has promised to us in his word. And that future, he says, you are to be continually focused upon. Set your mind on things above. As we've been studying 1 Corinthians 15, as we entered into this part of the letter that Paul wrote to a very troubled church in Corinth, we've seen that to him, it was highly important, the most important thing that he communicated to them in light of all their troubles, the most important thing he wanted to get across to them is that the teaching of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is foundational, it's central, it's what the message of the church is all about, it's what our lives are to be all about. There were false teachers there, though, and we've seen it as we've dug into this chapter. There, are, there were false teachers in Corinth who were saying that there is no resurrection of believers in the future. We don't know why they were teaching that. We don't know where they got that from. We think it probably was influenced by Greek philosophy, but they just didn't, they didn't believe. They said that it wasn't true that there would be a bodily resurrection, body and soul, of believers in the future. Paul is addressing that as a serious threat to the church. A serious threat. It's interesting to me that we tend to think of matters, when we talk about the teaching of the church, we tend to put matters of eschatology, teachings about the end times, teachings about the last day. We tend to put those teaching, teachings about eschatology in kind of a, a secondary category. You know, those, that's, that's kind of abstract, it's kind of surreal, it's kind of esoteric. So we put it in a category, it's like, well, okay, Christian life is about all these things, and yeah, there, if you really have some spare time on your hand, you know, go ahead and delve into things of eschatology, but Paul never treats teaching on the end times that way. He, he treats 
the things that the scriptures teach about the return of Christ, the new heavens and new earth, he teaches this as though it's vital importance to us. And we need to change our thinking so that it's a vital importance to our thinking as well. As Paul begins this chapter, remember the very first thing is he's trying to address this, this core issues of the gospel. Remember what he said in the beginning of the chapter, beginning in verse 3. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This, to Paul, was the gospel. A lot of people out there trying to define the gospel in different terms today, but that is the gospel. Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and he was raised on the third day. Everything else that the Bible teaches is built on that historical event. That's the good news. And so Paul then says... There is a connection between the historic event that transformed the universe, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and our resurrection. If, Christ, if there is no resurrection for believers, then Christ wasn't raised. If Christ wasn't raised, then it's a pretty dark reality. Down in verse, uh, going back to verses 12 and 13 he says now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead but if there's no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised what he's trying to get across there is that the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of believers are inseparable they're inherently connected in a way in which we will delve into in the passage today but instead of going directly to that, he actually pauses in the section we looked at a couple weeks ago. He pauses, say, well, let's, let's just do a hypothetical here. Let's imagine for a second that Christ is not raised from the dead. And you remember how he laid out the implications of that. If Christ were not raised from the dead, he describes a very cold, dark reality of a world without resurrection. If Jesus Christ died and stayed dead, then the apostles were liars. Not just mistaken, but they were liars. They should not only just be ignored, but they should be condemned. If Jesus died and stayed dead, then faith in Jesus was worthless. Just as worthless as faith in any other person who has died and is gone. If Jesus died and stayed dead, then we all remain under God's wrath and judgment. And all who die, even those who die in faith, are lost forever. And his final point was, if Christ died and stayed dead, then Christians are the most pitiable people on the face of the planet. That's where we pick it up in verse 20. Verse 20 is a shout of victory. Paul says, don't despair, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And then he goes on to talk about what does that mean for you and me, who are believers, what does that mean for those of you who may be here who aren't believers this morning? He digs into the implications of that. Since Christ is raised from the dead, it has huge implications, not just for our future, but for our lives today. And he will make those connections in this passage. The first point that he makes is that since Christ is risen from the dead, our resurrection is guaranteed. Let me underline that word, guaranteed. It will happen, not it may happen, but it will happen. You can count on it. Verse 20, Paul calls the risen Christ the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
Remember the word fallen asleep or the phrase fallen asleep is a euphemism in the New Testament for believers who die. When believers die, they fall asleep and awake in the presence of God. But he says that Christ is the first fruits. He was the first who conquered death and not only was raised from the dead, but stayed raised from the dead once for all. And Paul calls him the first fruits. And he actually uses that phrase twice, in verse 20 and then again in verse 23. Twice he calls Christ the firstfruits. And thereby he's, he's reminding those especially Jewish believers who knew Jewish culture that when you went out to pull, in, to, to, uh, to pull in your harvest, when the harvest just began in the fall, and you would go out to your grain harvest and you would bring in the first sheaf of grain, that grain was to be taken to the Lord and offered as a sacrifice to the Lord. It was an acknowledgement that the Lord had provided the harvest and by giving up that first portion of the harvest, you're saying, I trust the Lord's word that he will provide the rest because God is faithful to his promise. And so that's what Jesus' resurrection was, Paul is saying. It was the first fruits of the resurrection. Because Christ was raised from the dead, it's a guarantee that those who belong to him, in his words, would be raised as well. I've come across a number of commentators who compare that to a down payment. If I want to buy a $300,000 house, I will put down a down payment maybe of $30,000. And that's a guarantee to the seller that I will pay the rest, so to speak. But I don't like that, that language because when I think, and I'm, of course I'm dealing with sinner, uh, as a sinner among sinners, if I pay a down payment on something, there's no guarantee I'm going to pay the rest of it. I may, I may uh, not follow through on that promise, but we're dealing with God here. So I think a better, if you're going to use a financial analogy for the first fruits, the one that fits better for me would be a trust fund. If I am given a trust fund as a child, if I'm given a trust fund, I have all the legal rights to that wealth. It belongs to me. I just don't get it until later. And so that's what Christ's resurrection means. Christ's resurrection means that I have the legal rights in the sight of a holy and just God. I have the legal rights to my own resurrection because of his resurrection. It was the first fruits. And it's a guarantee, therefore, that I also will be raised from the dead. Well, the question then becomes how? How? If somebody asked you, Okay, you Christians, Easter's coming up. You Christians, you celebrate the resurrection of Christ. But what does that have to do with your life? Even if that happened, they would say. What does that have to do with you? How does that affect you? How clearly could you articulate the connection between Christ's resurrection and your own hope of a future resurrection? Well, I think that's what Paul gets into in this next section. Let me read verses 21 and 22 to you again. He says, For... As by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. There is a ton of deep theology in those two verses. Those are very simple statements. But they probably, if you know, your, if you know the New Testament very well, you probably know that it sounds very much like Romans 5. And that's basically what he's doing. He's, he's teaching the same thing that Paul teaches in Romans 5 in the, book, in the letter to the Romans. He's teaching here in Corinthians, but he summarizes. He, he abbreviates it in these two verses. And so let's dig into this a little bit because this, this is deep theology. It's what we call covenant theology. 
but it is the way that we articulate the connection between the resurrection of Christ 2,000 years ago and our resurrection in the future. It's based on what Paul's alluding to here. According to scripture, when God created human beings, he entered into a contractual relationship with them. When he created human beings and placed them in the Garden of Eden, they were living as perfect man and woman, living in a perfect environment, and he went, entered into a contractual agreement with them that we call a covenant. And in that covenant, we call it the covenant of works. This is how God spelled out the terms of the covenant to Adam, basically. He said, if you obey me and continue to obey me, then you will live. And by live, I mean you will live in perfection. You will live with all your needs met. You will live in an in a intimate relationship with your creator. Real life, if you obey and continue to obey. But if you disobey, you will die. And by die, God meant die physically and turn to dust and die spiritually and remain under his just wrath and punishment forever. That was the covenant of works. That's the contractual relationship that he established with Adam and Eve in the garden. And what Paul's alluding to here, doesn't spell it out very clearly here, and doesn't even go into all the detail necessarily in Romans 5, but what he's alluding to here is that Adam was our covenant representative. He was our covenant head. So when Adam chose to obey or chose not to obey, he was our representative. Just like we elect representatives to go to Congress so that they make choices on our behalf, in a sense, God appointed Adam to be our covenant representative before him, and the choice that Adam make, made, either to obey or disobey, we would be held accountable for it. That's the way that the covenant worked. And so, if you go back to Romans 5, let me just read some of those familiar words to you from Romans 5. He says in verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. That's covenant representation. So when Adam chose to rebel against God, Satan tempted Adam. Satan had already chosen to rebel against God, and Satan enticed Adam and Eve to join his rebellion, to reject God's authority, to make themselves gods, and to live for the flesh. And by making that choice, they fell, and we fell in them. So when we are born into this world, we are born guilty of the sin of Adam as well as all the sins that we commit. We are born with the nature of Adam. We inherit both his guilt and his nature. We are born sinners because Adam and Eve chose to give up paradise and fellowship with God in rebellion. That's the true explanation for all the evil in the world, by the way get that all the time as questioned as believers, don't you? Why is there so much evil in the world? It's the fall. It's not a complete answer, but it's an essential answer to the evil in the world. It's why the evil lurks within us. But as an amazing act of grace, God, the true judge of, of the universe, whose holiness was so grievously offended, God, by his grace, pursued Adam and he formed another contractual relationship with him. Another covenant, we call it the covenant of grace. And in that covenant of grace, he gave to Adam a promise. He said to him, 
that a seed of the woman, a child that eventually would be born from the line of the woman, would be raised up, would be sent into the world, and he would be wounded by the evil one. He'd be wounded by Satan, but ultimately he would crush the head of Satan. And that's the same gospel that Paul gave us so clearly back in verses 3 and 4 of 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus died for our sins and was buried. He was wounded by the serpent. But he was raised from the dead on the third day and thereby crushed the head of the serpent. He defeated Satan. He defeated death. He defeated sin once and for all. And there's the beautiful parallel. A lot of people say, hey, that's not fair. I didn't choose Adam to be my representative. I didn't get to choose. I'm an American. I get to choose all my representatives. I didn't choose Adam. Guess what? You didn't choose Christ either. God chose him to represent you. And Christ came into the world, and he obeyed the law of God perfectly. He fulfilled every role that human beings were originally in, uh, intended to fill. And he fulfilled him perfectly, and yet he offered up himself as the Passover lamb. He offered up himself as a sacrifice on the cross. He went to the cross and bore the wrath of God that your sins deserve, that my sins deserve. And he paid in full for those sins. And thereby, when God raised him from the dead, that meant God accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. And so our sins are forgiven and we are given the gift of his righteousness because he is our covenant representative. He is our covenant head. He obeyed for us. He died for us to release us from the condemnation that we received under the first covenant. That is what Paul means when he says, in Adam we all die, and in Christ we all shall be made alive. Paul describes this back again in chapter 5 of Romans in a little more detail. He says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now you're beginning to see the connection between the death and resurrection of Christ and our resurrection in the future. We are raised because he was raised. We will live because he died for us. And so Paul goes on in Romans 6, in that beautiful passage in Romans 6, he says in verse 5, For if we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. It's guaranteed. It's certain. Because Christ is risen, we too will rise from the dead. Death cannot hold us. Paul's second point is that since Christ is risen, therefore creation will be restored and our exalted position in creation will be restored. That's what he gets into in the next section, verses 23 through 28. He shifts his focus from what Christ has done for us in the past to what Christ is going to do for us in the future. He goes to the end of time when Christ will return to for those who belong to him, and they will be made alive. And then he goes on to say, then comes the end. As Paul talks about the end times, he, he talks about two different 
psalms that we call messianic psalms. Psalm 110, which is the most quoted chapter in the Old Testament in the New Testament. In the New Testament, it's quoted more often than any other chapter in the Old Testament. Psalm 110 and then Psalm 8. First of all, he paraphrases Psalm 110 in verses 24 and 25. In Psalm 110, verse 1, you'll see, you'll see the similar language. He says, uh, it says in Psalm 110, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. All the apostles pointed to that promise in Psalm 10 and pointed to it and said, this is what happened when Christ was resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It's describing a period of time where Christ is reigning on the throne. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. And his enemies are essentially defeated, but they're still very active. Reign until your enemies are defeated and destroyed. And then so Paul says that's what's going to happen when Christ comes again. He is already reigning, but one day he's going to come to finally defeat and put away every enemy of his kingdom, every enemy of his church. He says he will destroy every rule and every authority and power. Rule, authority, and power is a, is a triad of words that Paul uses to talk about both earthly authorities, but more often he uses it to talk about angelic authorities, fallen angels, demons. And so authorities in this fallen world and fallen authorities, the Satan and his, and his uh, leadership, they will be destroyed when he comes again. Christ has this authority. He actually gave signs of that authority even during his earthly ministry. Before he was crucified and raised from the dead, he had the authority to heal diseases. He had the authority to speak to the wind and waves and to tell them to stop. He had the authority to raise the dead. He had the authority even to command demons to do as he told them to do and to cast them out. But in Matthew 28, when he ascended, when he was about to ascend to the right hand of the Father, he said to his disciples, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Make no mistake, Jesus Christ reigns today. He's on the throne. And he is subjecting his enemies. But that day is coming when all the enemies will be put down and destroyed once and for all. And Paul says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Understand that because of his resurrection, Christ already has the authority to defeat death. It's just a matter of when. Remember when the Apostle John saw a vision of the, of the resurrected and ascended Christ in heaven in, in Revelation chapter 1. Remember what Jesus said to him? Jesus said to John, I have the keys to death and Hades. Satan doesn't have the keys. No one else has the keys. I have the keys to death and Hades. And then we get to the end of the great book of Revelation, chapter 20, after Judgment Day, after Christ has returned, after all of us have been raised and stand in his presence, the very last enemy will be put to death. It says that death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire by Christ. So that's in the future. That's the reign that will be completed and fulfilled when Christ comes again. But then Paul goes on to talk about how that relates to us. What does that mean for us in the future? Verse 27 is actually a quote 
and most English translations put it in quotes, it's a quote of Psalm 8. And you're probably familiar with Psalm 8, it's, it's a very common, commonly read psalm, but if you go back to Psalm 8, and I want to take you back there for a second, David, King David wrote Psalm 8, but he wasn't thinking primarily of the Messiah when he wrote it. We know that the Spirit inspired him to speak of the coming Messiah, but he actually was writing about man's exalted role as God created him in his image and placed him in authority over his creation before the fall into sin. So listen to the way David describes man's exalted role, beginning in Psalm 8, verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have placed all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. He's talking about this incredible status that God gave man originally to rule over this created world under God's authority. Before the fall, before sin came into the picture and messed it all up. Well, there's a connection. You see, Christ came as the second Adam. Adam failed to fulfill that role and rebelled against God's authority. But Christ came and fulfilled it. And that's what Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2 also quotes, quotes Psalm 8. It's another place where Psalm 8 is quoted. And so after quoting that same section of Psalm 8, this is what the writer of Hebrews says in response. He says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, man in his exalted state, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, the second Adam, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And then over in verse 14, he says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Christ, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see, Jesus was the second Adam, who came to restore creation. We hear all the time, people talk about save the earth. Christ is the only one who can save the earth. Christ is the only one who can restore things to the way they're supposed to be. Christ is the only one who can transform us so that we can fulfill the role that we were originally designed to fulfill. This time in a new heavens and a new earth. We will reign with Christ. We will fulfill the role that Adam was supposed to fulfill originally. You and I. When I read the books, uh, the, the Narnia books, the Chronicles of Narnia that C.S. Lewis wrote, if you remember in the very first book, that's one of the most jarring things is that you meet this, these four children who are just normal, sinful children. They've they're, they got sibling rivalry. They're fighting with each other. They're being really mean to each other. I mean, they're being typical children, immature evil children. And yet, when they get into this other realm, into this realm of Narnia, they're immediately told who they really are and what their future would hold. They said, you are sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, and there are four thrones that you will one day sit upon, and you will be the ones who reign over Narnia. 
And C.S. Lewis wants us to just wrestle with the, dis the, the discrepancy, the, 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 the vast gap between who they were as we meet them in those first few chapters and who they were intended to be originally. I want to impress upon you that you, when you were born again, if you're a born again believer in Jesus Christ, that when you were reborn, you were reborn into a royal family. You are princes and princesses who will reign over the new heavens and the new earth under the lordship of Christ. It's who you are. It's your identity. It is going to happen. His resurrection guaranteed it would happen. And so we come to the last section of the passage then, verses 29 to 34, the so what section. What, how then should we live? Paul says, since Christ is risen, our goals and our values for today are radically transformed. If that's who you see yourself to be in the future, if you are guaranteed that that is coming, it has to have a huge impact on the way the choices you make every day, the behaviors, the way you think. It's got to transform you. And that's what Paul's trying to say. That's how important your future resurrection is. I do want to stop for a second and talk about verse 29, because I know somebody's going to come up to me afterwards and ask me about it. It talks about people being baptized for the dead. And I'll tell you right now, I don't have any idea what Paul's talking about there. I, it, you know, there was something going on in the church at Corinth, and Paul just alludes to it in passing. And the best guess is that there were, and, you know, and it is important to notice he says they are doing this. Not you. He's not talking to the faithful believers in Corinth who are listening to him. He's talking about they, somebody else, some other group. And he's probably talking about, I'm guessing, he's talking about these false teachers who are saying there's no resurrection of the dead because that's why this whole point makes any sense. So he says, they're being baptized for the dead. Now, what, it's possible that people had died without receiving the sacrament of baptism and they somehow were teaching, well, you can be baptized for that person in their place vicariously somehow. That's the best guess, but we really don't know what was going on. The point that Paul's trying to make, he's not trying to say that's good or bad. You know, he's not, trying, he's not condoning the action. He's just saying, why would you ever do that if there is no resurrection? He's already said back in verse 18 that, that if Christ has not been raised, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They're gone. There's no hope for them. Why would you doing anything in this life have any benefit for them? Because they're lost. Well, then he goes on to say, okay, let's, let's talk about what a difference believing in this future resurrection and this future reign makes upon life. He says, look at my life. He, he points to himself and his associates and these other missionaries that are working with him and says, why are we in danger every hour? Back in chapter 4, if you remember, he talked about living in hunger and thirst, being poorly dressed, being homeless, being reviled, and being persecuted talks about here he makes mention of fighting the beasts in Ephesus and most commentators think he's not talking about literal beasts but he's probably talking about the enemies Demetrius and the silversmiths and the, the other riotous mob that he dealt with in Ephesus saying why why did we subject ourselves to that why did we allow ourselves to be considered the scum of the world over in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he lists the imprisonments, the beatings, the shipwrecks, the dangers in cities, and dangers in wilderness, and dangers in seas, the sleepless nights, the cold and the exposure. He says, we do all this for this gospel that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and was raised on the third day. We're doing it all for that message. And if there's no resurrection, then why? What gain is there to me? What, for what purpose would I do that? 
He goes on, verse 31 says, I die every day. My life is all about dying to self, dying to the flesh, dying to this world. But if this world is all I get, then why would I ever do that? I am of men most pitiable if there is no resurrection. He says in verse 32, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's that philosophy. If there is no resurrection, if there's no future beyond this life, then you better do everything you can do to maximize your comfort and pleasure, physical pleasure in this world because this is all you're going to get. You better do all that you can do to minimize your pain and suffering in this world because this world is all you're going to get. Whatever good you can suck out of this life here, there is no other good if there is no resurrection. And yet, even so many Christians live as though the choices they make, the decisions they make, the way they think, it's those, the good in this life is the only good you're ever going to get. But, Paul says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and in Christ we shall all be made alive. That's what we're going to be when we grow up. We're going to be raised from the dead, perfect in a perfect kingdom, reigning under the lordship of Christ. And that has to transform the way you think and the way you behave. Peter makes that same point in 2 Peter chapter 3 where he's talking about the second coming of Christ, which is certain to happen. He says in 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You see, unlike the rest of the world, we are not defined by our past. We, as believers in Jesus Christ, are defined by our future. Who we will be by his grace, guaranteed by his resurrection. And so Paul goes on to say in verse 33, Do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. You've heard that one before, haven't you? Maybe, maybe you didn't even know that was a biblical phrase. Actually, Paul didn't take it from other scripture. Paul took that from a Greek poet. Just to show that we're to be looking for beauty even in this broken world. He found a truth by a Greek poet and said, you know, it's really true. Bad company corrupts good morals. I'll just ask you in light of this, not only, you know, where's your focus? Is it future or not? I'd ask you to say, what's influencing your thoughts? What's influencing your perspective on the world? What's shaping your view of the future? In what ways are the friends that you hang out with and talk to affecting the way that you think about what's valuable, what's important, what's lasting? How are your viewing habits, your reading habits affecting your mindset, your worldview? We're all subject to peer pressure, and that peer pressure is intense 24-7. As I've said before, I enjoy science fiction, and I... You can't help but notice, if you read science fiction, if you watch the movies, watch the television shows, this culture's view of the future is very depressing. Talk about dystopian, the idea that the future is going to be darker and more 
There's going to be more suffering. There's going to be more evil. I challenge you to find a science fiction story anywhere that doesn't have a dystopian view of the future. And that reflects the worldview of the world we live in. It's funny, isn't it? What you expect to happen in the future has a big impact on how you live in the present. And that is, I hate to tell people, if you're not in, if you're not in Christ, if you don't have faith in Christ, the future is much darker than that. But if you're in Christ, we too shall be made alive with him. And that's where Paul wants our focus to be. That's why he says, wake up from your drunken stupor in verse 34. What, a, what an appropriate analogy. The way that alcohol tends to intoxicate us and cloud up our thinking and make us do and think things that we wouldn't do if our head was clear. He says, you know, spiritually, theologically, worldview-wise, you guys are drunk. You've been influenced by your Greek culture, been influenced by false teachers. You've lost your hope. We see our future, this beautiful, glorious, bright, royal future that we have as disciples of Christ. We see that future in the new heavens and new earth by faith and not by sight. That's why strengthening your faith is so important. Because the more clearly you see that future by faith, the better choices, thinking, and actions you're going to commit in the future, in the, in the present. Your present is dictated by your view of the future. And that's why we listen to the word of God. That's why we receive the means of grace. That's why we come to the Lord's table. So let's prepare to come to that table and be strengthened in our faith. Father, we thank you for these promises. We thank you for the resurrection of Christ. We thank you that we are guaranteed not only to live after death, but to reign in a new heavens and new earth where death and sin and Satan will be long gone. Father, renew that hope within us. Drive us forward by faith. May we hasten the day, if though that were possible, when Christ might come by striving to realize his victory over all the evil forces around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.